2: Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp, a return to the New Books Network. This is the History Channel. I'm here today with the Associate Professor of English at the University of New Hampshire, as well as the editor for the international journal, 18th Century Studies, Professor Sean Moore. Now, earlier this year, Professor Moore published his Slavery and the Making of Early American Libraries. British Literature, Political Thought, and the Transatlantic Book Trade, 1731 to 1814. And that book is the subject of the podcast today, again, out earlier this year by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Professor Moore.
0: Welcome. It's nice to be here. Thank you.
2: So, by way of introduction, what prompted you to study intersections between libraries, slavery, ideas, and possessive individualism during the 18th century. Further, why does the, quoting your book, sequential borrowing of works and the velocity of books circulating to patrons, enhance the prospects that these records may be taken as documentation of actual reading?
0: Well, this project really began uh, as creativity through constraint. I had done a first book on the Irish book trade of the 18th century, um, and was using a lot of archival material in the UK and Ireland for that. Uh, but by the time I was planning the second book, I had two kids under five, and my wife teaches uh, like seventy-five hours at, at an independent school. So um, I really couldn't travel very far. It's like that commercial, not leaving home for a while, right? <laughs> so um, I, uh, I, uh, I. Uh, I wanted to do an archiv- archivally based book on um, British literature, and uh, I thought, well, you know, I could talk about how British literature was read in the colonies. I had a specific interest in and in looking at the novel uh, as um, as a as an import into the colonies, and and what I could find out about um, how people were reading British novels. That really brings in uh, the um, The possessive individualism part, um, that's really a discourse within the theory of the rise of the novel that explains why certain characters behave the way that they do. Uh, At the time, there was an economic conception of the self, and uh, this had to do with the financial revolution of the 18th century and the encouragement of everyone to think of themselves as an entrepreneur. And so uh, possessive individualism becomes a kind of identity that's marketed in the novel. So I, would, I wanted to see, you know, were, were early Americans, uh, you know, getting this sense of, of what their personality should be um, from, uh, from novels. Um, and I was trying to put this together. And at the same time, my wife took a seminar from the NEH uh, for high school teachers at Brown University on uh, Brown University's relationship to slavery and how its endowment was, was created by people involved in slavery. Uh, and so I said, well, that must mean the Brown University Library was founded with slavery money as well. And then I was off to the races, I began to look at uh, libraries, not only at colleges, um, but uh, I decided to focus on these proprietary subscription libraries, uh, which were all over the East Coast in uh, the 18th century. And um These libraries, as I as I discovered during my research, uh, most of the people who owned shares in the library were involved in slavery or related enterprises related to shipping slave produced goods or provisioning slave plantations, uh, distilling rum uh, and that kind of thing, even shipbuilding. Um, And uh, one of the things that um, that you can see uh, with these libraries is that is that. as I said, they, they are shareholder based. You, they weren't public libraries where anyone was welcome and could borrow a book. Uh, this was before public funding of education and, uh, and and libraries. That really doesn't come along until you know about the mid nineteenth century. So you had to uh, basically be like in a joint stock corporation and invest in a library and, and own a share. Uh, and so um, these were elite. Uh, uh, libraries books were expensive at the time and, uh, and so you had to have uh, some substantial income uh, and since the dominant uh, economy of the Atlantic world was uh, was running off of, of, off of slavery uh, that was that was how uh, these libraries were built uh, in, in the process of, of researching the borrowing records I was confronted with a problem uh, that is epistemological uh, in nature which is how do you prove that when someone checked out a book that they actually had read it here i was writing this book and saying well so and so read such and such a book and that means x y or z um, uh that's not always true i i explain this to people who use a Uh, sites like academia.edu that sends you an email every day saying you have three new reads. Just because someone downloads your article or book does not mean that they've actually read it. The same thing applies to a circulation record from the 18th century. So one of the ways that you can uh, help determine this is, uh, is by looking at multi-volume works in the 18th century. And there were many of them. Uh, novels in particular would be multi-volume. If you see someone checking out, uh, you know, a novel like Robinson Crusoe or Pamela uh, on June 1st, and they check out the first volume of it, then on July 1st, they return that and check out volume two. Uh, and, uh, and then on August 1st, they return volume two and check out volume three. Uh, I think that's pretty commonsensical evidence that um, that person is working their way through the book. So that's that's how I am, Uh, intervening into the study of readings to say that circulation records can uh, teach us much more than we have ever thought before. Another uh, term I use is the velocity of borrowing books. This is when a book like Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations uh, gets checked out and uh, returned two weeks later and is immediately checked out by someone else. And then two weeks later is returned and immediately checked out by someone else. Uh, You can tell the popularity of certain books. Based upon um, how frequently they change hands, the term "velocity of borrowing" is borrowed from uh, uh, currency uh, theory, uh, which uh, essentially maps how often a dollar bill changes hands as as a indicator of um, of how well uh, the economy is doing. How how well is is a currency making it into many people's hands? So uh, you apply that principle to books, and you can see uh, something similar uh, that these books are being. Um, read and are popular.
2: Why did you decide to focus on the uh, proprietary subscription libraries in 18th century Salem, Rhode Island, New York, Charleston, Philadelphia? And what was their relationship to private libraries?
0: Private household libraries existed before these public libraries. There were also libraries that, um, say, uh, a a governmental uh, house, uh, like a state house, well, at the time, like a colony Uh, colonial legislature building would have uh, books for the for people mainly on on law so those those were kind of quasi um, uh, quasi private libraries Um, the two of the one ones I think of the most are William Byrd of Virginia and James Logan of Philadelphia as uh, big bibliophiles who had big private household collections now what happened is uh, some of these men who had collections of various sizes decided to pool their money in founding these proprietary subscription libraries. For example, when the Library Company of Philadelphia, the first of these libraries, was formed in 1731 by Benjamin Franklin and other uh, members of the Junto, um, uh, uh, they they got some books of their own that they donated. Um, They consulted James Logan to see if he would supply any books and if he could recommend any books that they should purchase. And then they made donations and were bought shares in the library that uh, that uh, funded uh, the purchase of these books in London. Um, uh, and, and then were, you know, these were brought back in, in a ship that was owned by uh, one of the members, uh, one of the shareholders in the library. So uh, basically, uh, this begins with. Uh, The libraries of of people made wealthy by the economy at the time uh, who had private household libraries and then um, and then formed these uh, uh, these these more shared, um, you know, proprietary libraries where everyone was an owner and they were able to get more books for each other's use by pooling their money.
2: Who was George Gardner? And what was the discrepancy between his 1760 purchase of John Hawksworth's anti-slavery stage adaptation of the 1688 Oronico and the incomes of Salem's social library proprietors, the latter of which derived from the slave trade and, as you've already alluded to, products connected with it? In your response, if possible, please also situate this discrepancy in the context of borrowing records for library holdings and sentimental philosophy and fiction.
0: Uh, Well, first I'll explain George Gardner was. He was a young Harvard graduate and a um, student in in the early uh, 1760s. His father was a major merchant, uh, Samuel Gardner, in Salem, Massachusetts. And I noticed that in a uh, uh, bookseller's uh, uh, ledger, Jeremy Condy's ledger from Boston in this period that George Gardner had bought a copy of *Orinoco*, and I said, "Well, how interesting is that? Uh, he here's somebody in Salem that is uh, uh, connected to Harvard and connected to slavery through his father, um, who is who is buying an anti-slavery work." Now, this is not surprising to many parents, right? Many parents uh, think that uh, their children go to college and, and develop um, more liberal ideas than their own. Uh, And uh, I think George was a similar type individual who was uh, getting interested in anti-slavery, even though he was the son of someone involved in slavery. Uh, And this is where the theory of discrepancy comes in. This was recommended to me by a reader uh, who peer-reviewed an essay I submitted uh, to the journal PMLA. And um, this, uh, this theory of discrepancy has a specific meaning in literary theory, uh, and has uh, been put together, really, by Frederick Jameson and Pierre Bordeaux. Uh, discrepancy basically means that even though you might have a dominant economy or some sort of other hegemonic um, uh, dominant economy or or culture, there's always going to be a counterculture in emergence against it in some sense. So um, so Gardner was very much, George Gardner was in a kind of countercultural uh, reading, uh, uh, position towards his father's business. Uh, once again, biting the hand that feeds you. Um, and, uh, you know, the fact that he was reading not, uh, the novel by Orinoco, but John Hawksworth, Hawksworth's, uh, uh 1759 stage adaptation of this is significant because Hawksworth really um, was more part of the sentimentality movement of the latter half of the uh, 18th century. And uh, and he he was basically creating a very sympathetic portrait of uh, someone who was enslaved, who was captured in Africa and brought to uh, South America uh, against his will uh, and, and what happens to him and his wife there. So um, this is a very sympathetic, tear-jerking play um, that uh, helped create uh, a lot of anti-slavery sentiment in London at the time, uh, and so George Gardner sort of he wanted to be in with what was happening with London culture, and uh, this play was one uh, one way that he could get access to the emergence of anti-slavery as a tasteful attitude, as something that the refined uh, person who has refined emotions. Um, uh should embrace uh, should become an abolitionist So um, that's where the um, the the connection uh, between anti-slavery and sentimentality uh, as kind of countercultures to uh, a slavery economy uh, emerge And uh, the borrowing records for um, the Salem social Library which is, uh, which I investigated because George Gardner was from Salem, and his slave-holding father was uh, uh, was a was a shareholder in the um, in the Salem Social Library, which later became the Salem Athenaeum. Uh, that's why I, I looked at the library holdings for that to see what people were borrowing. And Salem is interesting because um, in the same period that some other libraries were not stocking as much literature, Salem was stocking a lot of the latest novels and a lot of the latest literature as well as more classical literature. So, uh, you know, you can see uh, titles that were popular in the 1750s and 60s, such as uh, Eliza Haywood's Betsy Thoughtless, which was a conduct novel for young women that was being borrowed quite extensively, uh, even more than some other works. Um, And uh, that... um, that that would explain um, how George may have gotten access to some books when he was younger and even when he was in college, is that his, his father might borrow some of these books um, for him uh, at the library and, and let his son read them. Why was Gardner's consumption of this
2: anti-slavery adaptation, quoting you, simultaneously solipistic uh, for whites and potentially liberating for African slaves. And how did such sentimental refinement induce again, quoting you white American patriotism?
0: Well, these are kind of mutually informing categories. Uh, on the one hand, uh, there was a term that a professor, George Eliot Clark um, uh, Canadian scholar taught me when I was in graduate school at Duke. And this is the term borrowed blackness. And um, in this case, Uh, a young man like Gardner um, reading this or, or, you know, other, other uh, uh, patriotic um, young men uh, uh, who, who were seeing in the African slaves something in them uh, of themselves. And uh, even though these were free white men, um, there's a kind of appropriation of the status of the slave to argue for one's own liberty. And so on, on, on that, uh, in that sense, this is uh, people reading the slave kind of identify with the slave in in the um, in the slave narrative uh, in, in in a play like Orinoco. Um, on the other hand, slavery had had always been part of English discourse, particularly in the 17th and 18th century, um, and it wasn't connected necessarily to African slavery. It was used as a, a kind of political category uh, to describe um, whatever... Uh, whatever force was oppressing you, if you were, uh, you know, uh, involved in the civil war in, in the mid 17th century, you might, um, view King Charles the first as a tyrant who was enslaving you, um, because, uh, you know, of, of whatever his associations were for someone rebelling against him. And in this case, uh, you know, Charles the uh, first, there was always the association of, of a kind of, uh, Protestantism, Protestantism versus, uh, High Church Anglicanism or Catholicism being associated with the king, and uh, and then you know when you have a Protestant king, frequently you know uh, uh, Catholics would view that that Protestant king as a tyrant enslaving them and so forth. So. You know there is this political resonance that that was also important to the Patriots in the 1760s and 70s, uh, slavery not just being considered strictly African, but but also a kind of um, uh, uh, a native English uh, political discourse or political term um, that was being used to describe uh, the government.
2: Let's move to Rhode Island. You argue that the biography of Abraham Redwood and his Newport social network demonstrated Zezekian notions of charity and your conception of slavery philanthropy. Please connect this slavery philanthropy to your book's cover, as well as Redwood Library holdings in literature, entertainment, history, geography, and anti-Catholic narratives, one or all. And why was there an absence of explicitly slavery-related books? And how does slavery philanthropy inform present debates over the charitable industrial complex?
0: Well, the first thing I'll say, uh, I'll begin in the middle of your set of questions, uh, that it was strange that the Redwood Library's first printed catalog of 1764 did not have any anti-slavery books when the Library Company of Philadelphia had many of them, uh, you know, part of that is because you had, um, people, uh, in Philadelphia like Quakers, Anthony Benizet was an early shareholder in the library company, Philadelphia, and he was, you know, a principal abolitionist in America, uh, in the 18th century. And, uh, and so why Newport would not have abolitionist books is strange. They certainly had, um, uh, travel books of, about Africa, uh, about, um, uh, uh, traveling and trading to the Middle East and so forth, um, but uh, they, they did not have um, these abolitionist books. There may have been some circulating in um, in, in Newport because uh, in the mid 1770s, Samuel Hopkins, a Congregational minister, um, wrote an abolitionist book linking, um, you know, American white. Liberty and, and patriotism to the need to liberate slaves as well, um, but um, this was not really going over that well in in a town like Newport. Newport was probably uh, the most extensive slave trading port. Um, you know, Charleston, South Carolina would rank right up there as well. But um, but yeah, I would I would begin by saying there's some some sort of cultural difference between the library members in Newport and uh, and in Philadelphia Philadelphia being a far more abolitionist city uh, than Newport um, and um, one of the reasons I thought I would connect um, this idea of slavery philanthropy that went into founding these libraries um, to some more recent discourses about the role of charity in our society, um, is, uh, it's, 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 it's multivarious. Uh, you know, for example, I went to the university of Massachusetts in the 1980s and, um, you know, there was a, there was a robust, uh, you know, uh, support for, um, uh, keeping tuition low, uh, and tuition has risen much higher than that. And, and part of it is our society has, um, become far more, uh, oriented towards, um, uh, the idea that um, charity can supply all our private needs and we just need to uh, cultivate, uh, you know, uh, more extreme forms of capitalism in order to uh, in order to generate the the charity needed to uh, to support various organizations and the causes that they believe in. Uh, Zizek has a short video uh, of a lecture he gave in, in England about this, where he quotes Oscar Wilde's "Soul of Man Under Socialism." Uh, one of the things Wilde said that the the worst slave owners were those who were nice to their slaves because they kept the the, the evil system going. Um, and so, you know, there there has been this larger scholarly discourse. Peter Buffett, uh, Warren Buffett's son wrote something in the New York Times, I believe it was in 2013, and I think he coined the term charitable industrial complex, and he was expressing frustration that, um, you know, he he found himself often in the same room with the people causing problems in, say, third world nations, uh, you know, because of uh, attempts to economically exploit them, uh, and the people who were trying to ameliorate those problems. And uh, he, he began thinking like, well, you know, is, is there another, is there a, a third way? Is is there another way that we can think of, uh, of, of solving these problems besides uh, private philanthropy? And it's a very, you know, it's a very neoconservative idea that, that uh, say, in the founding per- period of the United States, you know, we had the Tea Party, we had other events against taxation. Um, so as we've moved to a more sort of a low tax uh, country and low-tax state, um, in favor of, uh, you know, a more neoconservative 18th century model of society, um, there's the, the danger that we also move into, uh, a slavery society if we're not careful because, um, you know, a lot of these institutions that were founded with, with, uh, uh, uh char- charity, uh, were, um, we're essentially enslaving Africans in order to give charity to white people. So um, all I'm saying is is that uh, this term slavery philanthropy, uh, you know, explains a lot. And uh, I'm not the only one working in this uh, area. I think Craig Wilder, in a book called Ebony and Ivy, has examined the foundation of most of our early universities, including Ivy League universities. And uh, without using the term slavery philanthropy, he is saying the same thing, is that uh, people involved in slavery were the, uh, were the donors to these universities. Uh, they sent their children to these universities who would then grow up to become uh, the uh the masters of the slavery businesses. So, um, uh, in short, uh, I, I, I use this term to make make the argument for a more public accommodation and public funding for the arts, the humanities, uh, and, um, and maybe return us to where we were when I was a student. Uh, because even, even Democrats are, are, have empl- embraced this kind of ethos. Not all, certainly, and I think it explains why you have uh, people like Bernie Sanders uh, doing so well in the polls, is, is that uh, a lot of people... Um, Uh, you know, are are rejecting this kind of uh, neoconservative political outlook, which comes from uh, uh, a a certain kind of neoliberal outlook on, on, um, on economics. Can
2: you please connect this concept of slavery philanthropy to your book's cover,
0: as well as perhaps to other Redwood library holdings? Um, Okay. The book's cover is of the founder, Abraham Redwood. He donated 500 pounds sterling um, to uh, get the library's first book collection. There were other people who donated the land on which the library was built and so forth. But um, Redwood, uh, he made contributions to Brown university as well early on um, when it was the college of Rhode Island. And uh, in, even when it was, you know, essentially endowed mostly by the Brown family um, and uh, Redwood Um, was uh, an avid reader. Uh, He was a uh, lover of all things English. He not only imported uh, books and furniture, he also imported an English gardener uh, named uh, Charles Dunbar because he wanted this gardener to design his Rhode Island estate Uh, along English lines. He was a big fan of English gardening as well. So uh, many affluent Americans were uh, Anglophiles and they were in love with um, uh, English tastes in everything and wanted um, everything that was new in in England. And so uh, Redwood was very much that kind of person. He uh, inherited uh, a slave plantation in Antigua. Uh, He had uh, at least one slave voyage, probably several others to Africa to uh, sell slaves um, in the Caribbean and uh, in other places. I I think I've seen some manuscripts showing him uh, uh, sending slaves to Georgia and then uh, giving orders uh, to march those slaves north to South Carolina. Um, And so so his profits were generated by slavery. And his entry in the Dictionary of National um, uh, Biography explains that it was, it was his involvement in slavery that, that made him uh, the greatest benefactor of the state of Rhode Island in the, uh, in the 18th century. The book that he's holding is Alexander Pope's Essay on Man. Uh, the, the book in the portrait is significant. Uh, methodologically, what this means for a book historian is that um, someone holding a recognizable book or being painted with books in the background that have specific titles on them. Um, that should really, I think, count for evidence of the reception of a book. It is basically saying, I want everyone to know that I have this particular book or this particular set of books, uh, around me. And these, books are part of what make me a refined person, but their contents, uh, to those who have read them also say something about me. And so, uh, what I argue is, is Redwood's, um, reading of Pope's essay on man, uh, is, is a conservative reading as uh, someone who never freed his slave slaves, even at his death. Um, because Pope's essay on man establishes the great chain of being where everyone has their proper place of subordination, uh, in, 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 uh, in nature and God's great plan for us. Uh, and, uh, in that is pretty much consistent with the idea of saying that slaves have their place as well and should not be freed, um, and, uh, and, and, uh, it's a very much, a, a very rigid class structure, uh, that someone who had inherited as much money as he did in the 18th century, um, uh, would, uh, would gravitate towards. So, uh, by holding that book, he's, he's basically trying to make a statement about his, uh, conservatism and his, uh, and his, uh, his, his anti-abolitionist outlook.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Please elucidate the passages and substitution anti-slavery strategies in Pope's 1713 Windsor Forest, as well as his 1734 Essay on Man, which the latter uh, sort of lambasted Catholic enslavement of Native Americans and kind of highlighted that divine plan that you alluded to for African and African-American slavery. What further evidence exists of the reception of Pope's works in the British colonies?
0: Well, Americans thought of themselves as English Protestants and had the same prejudices against Catholics and had a phobia of Catholic powers like France and Spain. Um, They eventually overcame these, uh, it must be said. uh, For example, uh, there were... uh, there was a preacher in Newburyport, Massachusetts, um, in uh, in the Old South Church there, who uh, you know, in the, in the lead up to the revolution, in the early days of the revolution, published a sermon where he was accusing the King of England of being a Catholic, which was a common strategy that borrowed from the English Civil War era, uh, that that um, that you 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 write something that is that is intended to uh, create uh, you know anti patriarchal feeling among young people. Um, And and you direct that um, in in that it's always figured in in the English imagination in that period as the authority figure being a Catholic. Um, And so uh, that same preacher, though, after um, uh, the Battle of Rhode Island, where um, Newport was rescued from um, from British control by the French. Uh, you know the French come along. The French are Catholic, right? And um, and so this this uh, this preacher in Newburyport reverses position and says, "Well, actually, Catholics are not so bad after all." And um, it, it's so. And so uh, I think this is interesting because you know Pope, though a Catholic himself, started out as a propagandist. I mean, if you were going to make it in uh, in literature in the earlier part of the 18th century, you really needed patrons and. Um, there were various sources of this. Certainly, private uh, money from um, you know uh, people like lords, um, and there was also uh, money from Secret Service funds that that would pay somebody who published uh, a a poem in favor of of certain. Um, you know certain certain strategies and cer- certain initiatives that uh, that the government wanted to to, uh, to bring about and uh, so Pope starts out with Windsor Forest uh, one of his early poems um, uh, doing that, that kind of propagandistic work on behalf of uh, of the Treaty of Utrecht that the government was trying to negotiate. Uh, this would end the, the War of the Spanish Succession and it would also uh, award uh, through international law, Um, it would award England a monopoly over the uh, transatlantic slave trade. And so uh, that was something, it was called the Asiento. It would be ceded from Spain into English control. Uh, The English could ship to any ports in in the Americas or around the world. Uh, They could ship slaves um, uh, to do that. And they had a monopoly to do it for, I believe it was 30 years. Um, Or maybe it was, yeah, I think it was 30. I think it ends, uh, it gets revoked in about... um, 1750. Um, so, uh, what Pope was doing in Windsor Forest, uh, what he was talking about slavery is, is a, like I was saying before, uh, this is an internal, uh, British political discourse, uh, referring to anybody who is not treating, um, uh, the people well. Um, but, um, but he's uncomfortable in in, in talking, using that term when he is talking about the Treaty of Utrecht, uh, because, uh, because the, tree, the Treaty of Utrecht was essentially bringing about, uh, you know, English involvement in African slavery uh, or a greater, to a greater extent than had been done previously. So what Pope did is he pointed the finger at the Spanish New World uh, Native American slavery rather than to English involvement. And so, um, you know, he, he creates sympathy for, for uh, Native American slaves and really just neglects to talk about Africans at all. Um, and so, uh, this, this poem is, you know, it's an English propaganda poem. Um, it, it, it wants to, you know, talk about the enemy who, who's the, the Spanish Catholic monarchy. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they're still fighting wars of reformation at the, in this period. And, um, and so, uh, when, when this, when this poem and and an essay man on men are, are, um, are read in uh, America um, you know these uh, these attitudes get reinscribed and perpetuated and um, the uh, I, I'm piggybacking you know on other work that has been done on the sheer popularity of Alexander Pope's work uh, an old book from 1949 um, uh, dis- discusses Pope's prestige in early America. Um, and uh, other other people have uh, have written about this like people like David Shields for example, more recently. Uh, in my own research, I saw that Pope was the second most popular author to be borrowed at the Salem Social Library uh, and uh, if you just look at Rhode Island Holdings alone you can see that Members of the Brown family owned copies of Pope's works. Uh, you can see that the early early catalogs at Brown University had them. You can see that uh, one of the first U.S. senators from Rhode Island. Uh, uh, you look in his papers, and he's citing uh, lines from Pope that you know uh, I only recognize because I teach Pope. I, I think other readers would not would not notice that. But uh, so uh, my archival research basically uh, affirms this this general scholarly uh, tradition uh, that that Pope was was popular in in the States or or in the colonies, I should say.
2: So let's move – actually, before we move to New York, um, how and why did critic Charles Gilden's 1719 review of Robinson Crusoe anticipate interpretations of the narrative as reifying prodigal disobedience and risk-taking in – possessive individualism, especially after Crusoe establishes that Brazilian plantation and replaces his father as a patriarch over infantilized, to a certain extent, slaves.
0: Well, I, I bring up Charles Gilden, and I, I bring up both the idea of disobedience to the father and um, Crusoe's involvement in slavery, because usually in, uh, in criticism, these ideas are, are held out separately. Um, there, There is a kind of more religious interpretation of Robinson Crusoe. Uh, you know, he, he does become converted to an evangelical form of Protestantism in the middle of the novel during his uh, many years on, on uh alone on the island. Um, he is visited by an angel and he, he basically has a, has this kind of a, uh, you know, very Christian experience on the island. Um, and, uh, you know, and that's been, that's been discussed a lot. And, and, you know, Crusoe blamed the fact that he was on this island in the whole course of his life on the fact that he did not heed his father's advice, um, and, uh, and, and stay, at home in England and uh, become a lawyer or something, someone at the middle station of life, become an ordinary middle-class Englishman, but that instead he ran away from home and, and shipped out on a ship and uh, and, and worked, uh, worked as a sailor. Um, and so people who have done this religious interpretation for some reason have not mentioned that his first job as a sailor was in the African slave trade. So I think that these two things are connected. Uh and I it turns out that I I'm not the only one. Charles Gilden wrote this from the outset in 1719. Um he's talking about this in, in his uh in his review of Crusoe's book and and um and that uh, you know Crusoe's disobedience to his father uh is out of the desire to participate in the slave trade and become wealthy uh through that. And and so um, you know, the the uh, the question becomes for many critics, uh is, uh, Crusoe viewing his punishment, um, on the, uh, being isolated on the island for so many years, um, you know, this punishment by God, is this a punishment, uh, uh, for disobeying his father, or is this a punishment for being involved in slavery? And, uh, I would argue that, um, uh, that it's both. And Gildan said that, you know, Gildan was, was someone who said that early on, you know, why are people talking about this prodigal disobedience when, when, uh, you know, maybe he's being punished uh, by God for, for enslaving other people. If possible, please
2: situate Robinson Crusoe within the post asiento and then the post-Revolutionary War history of New York. Uh, as well as the financial dealings of those West India men subscribers to the New York Society Library, the library's holdings in literature and political thought, as well as the early republic reading network of this particular narrative. And again, what further evidence exists of library anti-slavery
0: readership? Well, I'll start with the last question. Library anti-slavery readership can be established by seeing who read a book by a former slave like Phyllis Wheatley, and uh, and then seeing what else those reading uh, what what else those readers were reading, uh, uh, book historians uh, have recently coined a term for this. Uh, they call it mapping a reading network. So you you look at the network around an individual book. These are all the individuals who may have read uh, a particular book, and then you look at uh, each one of them. What, uh, who they were as a person, what were their business dealings, um, and, uh, and what other books they were reading. Uh, this has been uh, facilitated by a great database at the New York Society Library that Aaron Schreiner helped put together. Uh, and you can search um, the uh, borrowing records for, I believe it's uh, the 1790s and into the early 19th century um, uh, by the title of the book uh, or by the borrower and um, and you can get this information. And so um, I, I have established in this chapter on, on the reading of Robinson Crusoe that of the 44 readers of Robinson Crusoe, four had abolitionist reading habits, and uh, the other 40 um, uh, were all interpreting Robinson Crusoe as a pro-slavery book. So the, the, this, this shows that the, the dominant way that Robinson Crusoe was received as like, this is a gallant young man taking risks on the high seas in order to make his profits in his way in the world. Uh, this is a form of entrepreneurship we want to reward. And so American editions of Robinson Crusoe in the late 18th century uh, consistently s- call Robinson Crusoe in the title of the book, uh, you know, the story of Robinson Crusoe, um, uh, that, that hero um, and so, you know, the idea that uh, that people can interpret Crusoe Crusoe's behavior in many ways, depending on what their values are, uh, as with any book or any character in a movie or book, you uh, it depends a lot is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, but in this case, uh, the forty beholders of Robinson Crusoe, um, I, I looked at their. This involvement, and they were all involved in uh, trade with uh, with uh, slavery plantations in the West Indies and, and uh, the South and other places, and uh, some of them actually owned their own slaves in New York City itself. So, um, so yeah, Robinson Crusoe. Uh, I used to love the book, and uh, after reading, after doing this project, I'm a little skeptical of going sailing these days.
2: <laughs> what was the significance of fetishized slaves as real estate assets? For South Carolina paper currency, prior to the seventeen fourteen, excuse me, seventeen forty transition to chattel, and perhaps after, as well as the seventeen forty eight founding of the Charleston Library Society by planters and slave traders.
0: Uh, well, with slaves as real estate uh, during, um, you know, county as real estate uh, before and, and not as chattels during the era of experiments in land banking. Um, Africans essentially served as the assets behind uh, mortgage-backed securities and the paper money that governments issued on those securities. So um, you know you could uh, uh, you could have a, a, a land bank that was essentially uh, the government. O- well, not only the government, a private source could do this too. But uh, but uh, it was it was real estate mortgages that were the you know the the uh securities that that were were backed by the real assets of you know various aspects of a farm slaves being um being one of them uh and then uh, and then after 1740 uh when slaves get recategorized as chattel um you know that uh that relationship becomes uh more and more clear um and you know paper currency was a subject that i've been interested in f- for my whole career um, but this, the South Carolina version seems particularly compelling because, uh, they essentially, um, you know, collateralize, uh, paper currency, uh, notes, uh, with, uh, with, with slaves. And so, um, you know, this, this, this involves a very complex understanding of transactions, but, you know, basically you could, um, uh, the government would would have their own slaves whether those slaves were used in payments by individuals for each other in an economy that didn't have a lot of currency uh, were, were these were these slaves uh, banked by the government or were they were they sort of used to pay taxes those are those are kind of the more detailed questions I don't exactly uh, know but the point is is that is that there was uh, the government owned slaves uh, to the extent that um, that they could issue paper currency on 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 um, on, on, on slaves as the, uh, as the basis, um, you know, as the assets behind the paper currency that could be redeemed for. How did Crisole, the
2: coin in the it narrative, Crisole become both a slave to the owners and also a potential enslaver in transatlantic commerce. And how did this narrative serve as a monetary model for 1812 library subscribers in the Carolinas, such as slave trader, William Boyd, and what about uh, Eliza Piketty's, uh critical conceptions of Samuel Richardson's possessive individualist, Pamela?
0: Well, um, first, um, I wanted to define a it narrative. Um, uh, I think it was Aileen Douglas uh, of Trinity College, Dublin, who's currently the chair there, who coined this term, uh, so to speak, uh, in the early 1990s and, and looking at um, Crystal because uh, uh, John Stone, the author, was, a, was an Irishman um and uh the narrative describes anything such as a uh, a coin a banknote uh uh a a hackney coach and, and various other kinds of objects that are are basically personified as characters that circulate from owner to owner and you get to see their adventures uh and so rather than having uh you know uh, uh, a character who who travels the world, you have these, these objects that do, and, and coins, of course, do that. Um, but the coin in this novel, Crystal or the Adventures of a Guinea, uh, works as what critics uh, of our Greek and Latin classics call a tricky slave who figures out ways of owning his master. Uh, the coin character is a fly in the wall, seeing everything his various masters are doing, and is therefore a spy reporting to the reader. Uh, This coin character was of interest to people who made transatlantic transactions, people like Boyd. Um, And, uh, you know, so Boyd would be dealing in various currencies. uh, And so it's kind of interesting that that he would find this tale uh, fascinating, because you know, he he would be able to think about the various people who might own a piece of money, like a, a doubloon or something you know, that he acquired in a slave transaction. You know, d- did this come from, uh, you know, South America, a Peruvian mine, perhaps, uh, and then, you know, make its way into his hands in, in, in South Carolina and uh, and these coins kind of, you know. Collect, uh, you know, these characters in a way that they meet, and they're meant to be um, satirical. So, a lot of the characters that Crystal the Coin meets are um, are people uh, of many vices, people who are not such savory individuals. And um, and what it does is kind of it kind of maps people's bad behavior when when money is the only value. And uh, you know, so what. Uh, Johnstone essentially is doing by having the, the coin be uh, a kind of moral judge of people is to is to you know make people a little bit more skeptical about uh, embracing uh, money as the only value in a society.
2: Let's move to Pennsylvania for the 1731 Library Company of Philadelphia that you already alluded to, established by the Junto. How and why? Was the high cost of proprietorship and borrowing connected to the wealth created by slavery?
0: Well, um, this one was fairly easy to, to do. In terms of research, uh, you know, the historical methodology is quite simple. You look at who the shareholders in the library were, and the Library Company of Philadelphia has a shareholders book where you can easily see who the uh, the first uh, founders were and, and the, the first shareholders. And then you uh, go next door to the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, and you look up their family papers to see, is there anything that we can learn about them? And, and you turn up, uh, you know, plenty of of information quite easily. I was only in Philadelphia for a month and I was able to find quite a lot that establishes this. Uh, For example, um, uh, one one library member was named William Fisher, um, and uh, his papers show um, something quite interesting. He took a trade mission from Philadelphia to Barbados and then wrote back to um, all of these individuals with basically the same letter Almost like a form letter saying, "I have sold your wheat and flour uh, to uh, here in Barbados," and and so basically he would be selling the, these to uh, provision plantations to feed people living on plantations, including slaves. And so that establishes clear evidence that uh, you know uh, uh, the the uh, the farms of, of Pennsylvania were um, were you know, making their profits off of, 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 uh, of of sending, um, uh, sending their products like flour, uh, to slave plantations. And, and, um, uh, whenever I am in, in the uh, West Indies and I see a Quaker oats box now, that's all I can think of. And, uh, (laughs) the, the, uh, he he. Write he, you know. So Fisher writes back. Says I've sold your flour and I've exchanged it for molasses and and uh, sugar and rum, which I'm going to send back to you. And so then uh, that that those products become a currency that goes back to Philadelphia, that then then gets sold and you know basically drives the economy. And so uh, one of the things that's interesting about William Fisher's uh, uh, papers on the, on this matter is is that um, I identified everybody who he was writing and they were all shareholders in the library. So what was interesting for that is like, ah, okay, this explains why the Hunto founded the library, uh, not only as an institution of learning, but as something for the furtherance of business. So, um, you know, I, I didn't find, you know, the, the the evidence of shareholder reading is pretty scant at the library. I'm not saying that they weren't readers, but um, really a lot of times these libraries functioned as, um, Social networks uh, for businessmen uh, to make deals with each other and uh, be a place where uh, they could cultivate connections um, and uh, you know with other wealthy people involved in business. Uh, one of the, one of the places you really um, see this most strongly is Alexander Hamilton visited with some members of the Redwood Library of Newport. Uh, and he he wrote something I don't I don't know if I have the exact phrasing but he said I, uh, I was surprised that they brought up no matters of philosophy they, they talked of uh, privateering and shipbuilding and so that that suggests yeah that suggests mm-hmm. that you know okay so these libraries are not just about having you know a book club talk every Tuesday night they're they're uh, they're very much uh, you know uh, almost chambers of commerce, you know for uh, for these cities so um, uh, they're important social networks in that sense.
2: So hopefully they did read, and if they—if most likely they did—how did historical studies, political theory, philosophy, buildings, Roman fiction? Anti-Catholic autobiographies and travel narratives, one or all, contribute to Anthony Benze's African Tracks, which, you argue, um, in turn substantiated um, Equiano's 1789 narrative and its sentimental construction of capitalism for a possessive individual aiming to overcome dispossession.
0: Well, the case with uh, Anthony Benizet was interesting. Um, he was uh, a member of the, uh, a shareholder in the library company from its earliest days. He was really in on the founding of it. And um, he was an abolitionist. Um, and um, he was an avid reader of many genres, uh, as was Equiano. The uh, You know, e- Equiano, the, the the sheer number of genres and um you know, characters and events that someone like Equiano can marshal in writing his narrative, uh, is, is really impressive. So with, with Equiano, we don't want to just think of him as a, a writer, but what makes him a great writer is he's a great reader. Uh, yes, he's an abolitionist. Yes. He's a former slave. Those are important, but, um, but he had access to books. We don't know where exactly, but given that he he, uh, experienced most of his time, uh, most of his life on a ship, uh, the chances are he's reading, uh, ships, li- you know, at ships libraries. Um, and you know, there's some downtime when you work on a ship when you're, when, uh, it's not your watch, um, you have, uh, some downtime to read and, and, uh, there's not much else to do, uh, aside from other work on the ship. So, uh, I think he probably, uh, read, um, on, on shipboard. Um, so, uh, in terms of possessive individualism, uh Equiano, uh, you know, he cites Benizet in the first chapter of his book, saying, see Equiano's account from Africa throughout. Uh, Benizet had written a book called Some Historical Account of Guinea uh, in the 1760s. And, um, you know, uh, Benizet had never been to Africa, but he had been reading other readers, uh, other people's travel um narratives, travel reports on Africa. And, uh, and so he crafts a kind of, uh, image of Africa that, uh, where, where Africa is, is not seen as a uh, West Africa. Anyway, he's not seen as a, as a very foreign civilization, but a civilization that is actually quite Quaker in outlook, or perhaps Judeo-Christian in outlook and an organization. And so he, he really tries to redeem an image of, of African society by selectively reading these travel accounts. And, um, and so, uh, uh, Equiano, uh, cites Benazay, uh, who, you know, this other avid reader, and, um, he was trying to prove, Equiano was trying to prove that even though he was a slave, he was a legitimate English capitalist who deserved freedom. And he makes himself a possessive individualist character like Robinson Crusoe. Uh, Ramesh Malapeti, uh, a professor at the University of Colorado has recently argued that, um, that, uh, what uh, uh, the, the 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 main forebear of the character of Equiano as he constructs himself in his in, in his autobiography is a uh, is, is Robinson Crusoe himself. Uh, you know, Equiano goes through things like shipwrecks and so forth. Uh, he's writing an, an adventure story about his own life. Uh, he he even mentions uh, working on a slave ship. Equiano worked on a slave ship himself. Uh, various other things that would would really. Tie him into the reader's imagination of someone like Robin Crusoe. So uh, you know that's really uh, that's really what uh, Equiano is, is doing, and um, uh, and and trying to create fellow feeling. Uh, among his readers saying it's unjust for this good uh, entrepreneur to be a slave. And, and many people felt, you know, they were just trying to make a success in business and, and that, you know, they were, they were being treated unfairly. And, and this, this African, to them, uh, you know, becomes a sentimental figure. Equiano becomes somebody who they identify with and say, you know, uh, I've been through what he's been through. This, this should be a free man.
2: Let's end with the sales of Equiano's narrative. So in Philadelphia, how did library company borrowing records of memoirs, historical fiction, masculine voyage narratives, anti-slavery books, and and Atlantic economy texts one or all help explain Thomas Dobson's purchase of 100 copies of the New York edition of Equiano's narrative for subsequent sale in Philadelphia?
0: Well, Philadelphia was an abolitionist city with many artisans who were drawn to rags to riches stories, like a slave starting as a small-time English Protestant capitalist and making it big. Um, that's one of the things Jim Green, who's the librarian at the Library of Company, has published extensively on any number of the matters that I the, uh, about the Library Company in abolition. Um, but he he's the one who, who wrote the article on the uh, the well the most quoted article on. Um, on uh, the reading of, of or the publication history of, of Equiano's interesting narrative in America. And so uh, he establishes that um, this is one of the most um, popular narratives in the 1789 to 1791 period. It was reprinted in New York and, and sold quite well. Um, and uh, it sold quite well, particularly among artisans, uh, you know, small-time entrepreneurs, craftsmen, uh, who really identified um, with uh, the story of someone who had been in equiano situation, uh, and so um, Dobson? Uh, I recently, only only a couple days ago, I saw Do- Dobson cited in the papers of a of a Massachusetts man who ended up becoming Secretary of State. Uh, Dobson was supplying many people with uh, with books um and uh, there are a lot of papers detailing anyone who was living in Philadelphia seemed to you know in the late 18th century seemed to deal with dobson uh anyone who was a reader that is um and so um dobson anticipates uh that in a quaker city abolitionist city like uh Philadelphia that this that if he bought 100 copies of the new york edition uh it would sell well i unfortunately i haven't been able to find f- uh, a further paper trail on what happened to those 100 copies uh but uh, I'm sure that if we looked in family papers um, for, for, you know, say the, the, the 1790s, um, we would see people with a, a transaction with Dobson to buy the book. Uh, that would be a lot of work. But, um, you know, if you could find a few of them, you, you would uh, be able to make a, a very solid case for that. But um, but that's uh, that's really the explanation why uh, a bookseller could anticipate selling so much abolitionist literature.
2: So I have one more question. Uh, What can we expect from you next? Are you working on another project? Uh, uh, Are you taking a vacation? What's next for you?
0: Well, what keeps me quite busy is um, all the work associated with being editor of 18th Century Studies. Uh, Having that on top of writing this book has been quite challenging. Uh, However, I want to push forward and and keep working. Uh, I'm in a situation where – In order to produce another book, I will need a a funded project. So I have several in mind uh, in book history. Um, One would be another Irish book history book. One would be a literary biography of uh, John Dryden, uh, a book on his library and reading. Uh, I've also thought of expanding on this uh, my discussion of the portrait of Abraham Redwood holding a book by discussing early American portraiture. Uh, of people involved with slavery. And, and in, those, in their portraits, are they holding books? And, um, and how did they get those books and so forth? do sort of a, a book on just a, a larger inquiry about portraiture of books and in connection with slavery. I'm thinking of calling that slavery books in the making of early American art. So those are three projects that, um, that I'm, I'm contemplating right now. hope you remember the New
2: Books Network, if any of those projects come to fruition. Thank you. So the book is uh, Slavery and the Making of Early American Libraries, British Liter- Literature, Political Thought, and the Transatlantic Book Trade, 1731 to 1814, out earlier this year by uh, Oxford University Press. Professor Moore, I thank you for being on the show today.
0: Thank you, Ryan. It's been a pleasure speaking about my work, and um, I love your podcast, and I thank you for including me in them.
2: So this is been a new books network production for the history channel on behalf of professor Moore, please tune in next time.